Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist, and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you very much. I would also appreciate if you took a moment to follow it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. I also have to let you know that our latest volume of L. Ron Hubbard Presents Writers of the Future is now available in bookstores throughout the U.S., Canada, the U.K., South Africa, and Australia, as well as through all major online retailers. So whether you're looking to discover top new voices in the genre or are an aspiring writer or artist looking to see what these artists have done to win, this book is for you. Today's guest is Dennis E. Taylor. I was introduced to Dennis via Kim Catalano, who is the Senior Vice President of her sales at Galaxy Press, who said, you need to interview him. His books are great. His bio simply states that he's a retired computer programmer, an enthusiastic snowboarder, and an inveterate science fiction reader. Having read my first book in his We Are Legion, We Are Bob trilogy, I now understand her enthusiasm. Welcome, Dennis. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. So, first of all, you're Canadian, which is awesome. My wife is Canadian, and she loves all things Canadian. And uh, so, were she here to see you, she would obviously have an immediate attraction to the fact that you're a Canadian science fiction writer. So, anyway, that's... Uh, I'm actually starting off this podcast with one major big plus, in addition to being a good storyteller. Cool. Um, a few weeks ago, we were at the Rise of the Future uh, Awards Gala, and Rob Sawyer, I don't know if you know Rob at all, Robert J. Sawyer. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the dean of Canadian science fiction, one thing he's been dubbed, and um, he just received the uh, Owen Hubbard Lifetime Achievement Award. He's been a judge for like 15 years. And we've also had, over the years, because it was just volume 39 that we released, We've had two uh, grand prize winners from Canada. One was uh, James Allen Gardner back in 1990, and then in 2007, Stephen Kotowicz. And then this last year, we had two winners uh, who are Canadian, uh, JL with Jessica Johnson and Spencer Seculin. So um, we definitely love our Canadian authors. They do very well routinely in the, in the contest. So um, I guess the uh, the first thing is, Writing science fiction appears to be a second career for you. So um, as this is Writers of the Future, we're very much into um, tips and inspiration for aspiring writers and for those who are already established how to take their next steps. So can you give me a little bit of history of what your journey is? Okay, well, to start with, um, writing isn't my second career. It's about my fifth. Oh, really? Yeah, I bounced around a lot. When I was younger, I was a loans officer at one point. I worked at McDonald's. Uh, I was a salesman at Radio Shack. You know, I've been I've been everywhere. And then around 25, I took up computer programming, and that that really took off. Um, it clicked with me. Yeah. So I, I I I worked as a computer programmer from 25 to about 59, I guess. And then when I wrote my first novel, it Actually, my first novel went nowhere. That was Outland. Uh, When I wrote my second novel, uh, We Are Legion, that took off, and suddenly I found myself with a a new career with better income. Oh, that's good. So now on writing, because normally a person doesn't just like step off the ledge and and there we go, the the words just flow out, and there you go. So was there any type of of an arc like you were – used to love writing in high school or college or you just kind of like, no, I, I just started writing and I started writing outland and, uh, I self published it. It, the, the first version was kind of amateurish. The thing about me though, is that I'm obsessive about researching anything that I get interested in. So I was all over the place on the internet. Um, you know, various websites and bought books on Amazon on how to write and stuff like that. And I just basically bootstrapped myself. Well, that's fascinating. So that's something that a lot of, there's so much mumbo jumbo and various other, you know, criticisms and do this, don't do that. 
can't you read the sign um, that's out there and like what to do? So this is great talking to you right now on this. So you did just a bunch of, of study. Did you have a critique group or did you have a writing group or did you have friends that said, this is great, this isn't so great? Um, I was on Scribeophile for a while, quite a while, actually. I, I think I just uh, canceled my membership last year. But uh, it's a great place to go when you're learning. You do get interact with other writers at various levels of, of skill. And if you can join one of the uh, focus groups, like the group I, I joined was uh, Fantasy and Science Fiction Group. And if you can join one of them, then you get the same people critiquing you every every week and you're critiquing the same stories every week that there's a little more continuity if you're just in the general uh critiquing pool you never know what you're going to get right so now you said you kind of like jumped from computer programming to writing international best-selling novels (laughs) so (laughs) um with, with one little hiccup so that's how can you explain that more so that's a little bit more palatable for someone who's like really trying? Okay, I think the most important thing you can have uh, to be a successful writer is a good idea. Y- you can be the greatest, most erudite person in the world, but if you're writing stuff that's just me too, that's been done a thousand times, that doesn't have any originality to it, it's probably not going to catch. But if you come up with something that's a, a great twist, uh, a reversal of a, tw- of a trope, or something brand new, you can almost be a bad writer and still make it work. Okay, well, let's address that. So you were able to come up with something that made me want to turn the page, and that's not something that's innate. That's a little bit more of a learned thing on, on how to put sentence structure together, how to use words that makes you want to see what the next words are as compared to something that's see Dick, see Dick run, there's Jane, Dick and Jane go up the hill, get a pail to fetch a pail, a bucket of water. Yeah, well, I am, I have been an inveterate reader since uh, grade five. I picked up my first science fiction novel in grade five. Uh, it was um, something by Angus McViker, The Lost Planet. And it hooked me on science fiction, but it also hooked me on reading. And f- from that point until now, I've been reading constantly. It's it's uh, one of my favorite pastimes. You can't read that many books without absorbing the... the uh, uh, of the writing and the word choices and things like avoiding echoes and putting in appropriate descriptions and stuff like that. It's intuitive if you absorb it. Okay. Well, obviously it was intuitive to yourself because I've uh, talked to, now I just, I'm just curious because you're a programmer, you said from 25 to 59. So there's 34 years also there's also a mindset to being a programmer. Your, you know, your ability to think sequences and uh, cause and effect. And if you do this one thing, this could have some negative effect down the road. Because your story definitely didn't come off sophomoric. You know, um, it was definitely you use. I, mean, I found myself because I was using Kindle. I was using the the Kindle dictionary frequently on some of your more technical terms and then and then we're going to address the whole subject of uh, of satire because that's how it was originally given you as an author to read um by kim just because your your satirical approach to politics and religion in there but also your use of history um so i mean they, all three different areas to be able to take off in here now so which of those, the, the history part, you smiled the most when I just said that, but um, your ability to pull from the past, even though you're talking now a couple hundred years in the future, how'd you do that? Uh, in, in terms of the writing style, it just felt right. In terms of the actual content, I don't think I made any great leaps. 
either either in terms of my predictions for the next several years when at the time that I wrote it, or for my uh, retrospective when I was discussing the past history, none of that is what I. None of it's a leap. None of it's uh, oh that'll never happen. Although I will admit, a lot of people wrote me on my blog and said oh that'll never happen, and it has since happened. So those comments didn't age well. Yeah, well, one of our judges, uh, Dr. Gregory Benford, signed up for that program to have his brain, you know, frozen cryogenically so that at some point down the road, um, he'll wake up and raising his one arm, you know. Yeah, or he'll wake up inside a computer. Yeah. That, I mean, so so let's just go with with that idea there. How much of that was just tied into the fact that you were 25 years as a programmer. And so it just kind of like it evolved because you're doing it. Like what type of programming did you do? Well, I was all over the place. Uh, most of my career, and I'm, I'm loath to admit this, but most of my career was spent uh, programming in COBOL. And it's not a personal choice. It's just the way it worked out in the business I was in. Uh, you pick the best tool for the job, really. Yeah. Um, one of the things that programming did teach me was not to have religious viewpoints. And I mean that in the small r religious point of view, you have to be pragmatic. What works, you use. What doesn't work, you don't use. Um, don't accept something just because somebody pounds their fist on the table and says, this is the way you have to do it. You know, work it out. There are best practices. There is no dogma. Good. That's absolutely correct. And that's one thing that winners get. And even when you take the free online workshop that we have on ridersofthefuture.com, you've got three different judges giving you three different directions. You can take your own. What works for you is what works for you. Yeah. yeah. So now on, um, like I said, satire is We've got a book coming out or re-releasing a, a series of books called Mission Earth that was written by Elwin Hubbard in the early 80s. It's very much satire, and it steps on anything that gets that has toes is stepped on. I um, like it already. Yeah. So you definitely, by by going, what is it, 200 years in the future, 150? What? 130, I think, was the, the actual amount. Okay, 130 years in the future, you definitely have a, a new world that's been severely dogmatized uh, through religion, but then religion then has has encroached upon politics, and then um, it's just... That'll never happen. <laughs> you know, so um, what was, maybe it's a silly question, but what was the inspiration to be able to go in the direction of satire? You know, or maybe you weren't considering satire, but it's definitely humor science fiction, which is kind of like what's referred to these days. Yeah, I think that's just me. Um, I, I, I tend to have an, a, a cynical point of view on things that, that I express as humor. Uh, so my character, That's what satire is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But my character is in a serious situation, but he's looking at it from the point of view of somebody who just doesn't take things entirely seriously. So it's not like Douglas Adams books where things themselves are ridiculous. It's just Bob's view of things that he thinks they're ridiculous. He certainly does. And um, I mean, it's good to you. You cover the bases because obviously there's the, the back doors that he has to discover to be able to break the, uh, or to unhandle the, uh, the codes that were set there to be able to control him at some point down the road. But then the, not the total, but the near total destruction of earth with all these cataclysmic clashing of faith slash politics was really um, not a hopeful outcome for way things are, are going. So on that, what was your inspiration? <laughs> Uh, I think that was more of a plot device, actually. Um, okay. I, I needed the earth to be in shambles in order for somebody to come back and help rebuild it. 
And I, I think at the point where I was actually writing that, I wasn't sure how that was going to come about, but I knew that that's what they had to do. They had to come back to earth. They had to lead humanity out to the stars. So what better than a global warm war? Yeah. <laughs> global, global warming. Sorry. That was a Freudian slip. <laughs> yeah, it definitely uh, warmed up. So now, um, now I didn't read, are there three volumes in the trilogy or did I see a fourth? There's so, four now. Uh, Heaven's River is the fourth. Yes, a trilogy of four books. I've, I've had people. Okay, you mentioned uh, Douglas Adams. So, okay, good. So there yeah, we go. Yeah. And, and I've just finished the fifth. I've, um, I've gotten beta reader uh, responses back. I've got to fold them in. That's going to take a day or two. So I'll have this out to my editor by the end of the weekend. Wow. So, um, Mr. Adams, anything you can do, I can do better. <laughs> a five book trilogy now. So, um, okay. Indie versus trad. So you said you started self-publishing just through, uh, KDP, Kindlepreneur. Is that what you did to start? Yep. And then how did it transition? Then you go to an indie publisher or did someone else just pick you up then and said, okay, good. We like you. So now we're going to give you a $3 jillion advance and let's go run for it. Well, I uh, always intended to go traditional if I, if I was able to. Um, so I started working through query tracker to find an agent as soon as I'd finished outland. And I sent out 50 or 60 queries and I got butkus. Um, right. Um, including from my now current agent. So that was ironic. Uh, but, but the first iteration of Outland wasn't good enough to get picked up. It had a lot of cliches in it. And, you know, I accept Don't that. Don't you know? Yeah. So I, I went with the traditional publishing or traditional. Ease. I went with the indie route, uh, published it myself on KDP. I spent a total of like $120 on the whole process for a cover from somebody. And, uh, you know, I was making coffee money, even Starbucks coffee money. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it, but, uh, it, you know, you're, you're never going to get rich that way. And when I, and then I started up writing We Are Legion, which was the other book idea that I'd originally had. And when I finished that one, I went the query tracker route again, uh, started sending out queries. And the very second one that I sent out, I got back a response from Ethan. Uh, he tried to sell We Are Legion to all the traditional publishers and had no success because it had some specific problems. One is that it was the first of a trilogy, which is hard to sell. And second, mm -hmm. it was from a, an unknown author, which makes it really hard to sell. Right. So, we got no traction at all from the traditional publishers, but we did get a bite from Steve Felberg at Audible. He liked it, and uh, he made us an offer. So what we were faced with is a situation where we couldn't be traditionally published. We had an audio publisher, but no print publisher. So what do you do? Right. So we took we we eventually took the contract with Audible which in retrospect was absolutely the best decision on the planet. Good. Um, and Ethan, who had a, um, I can't remember what his, what his name is for it, but he sells text version novels on his website for authors who have a huge backlist stuff that's otherwise out of print. So he added my book to that and started publishing it himself, basically through Kindle and, uh, the the hard copy version was something else, but but uh, Amazon handles it now. So I was essentially hybridly published, traditionally published audio and sort of self-published for text. Mm -hmm. The disadvantage, of course, is you don't have the the weight and experience of a traditional publisher behind you. Your book doesn't get out to all the bookstores on the planet. Uh, you don't go on tours. You don't. Uh, you don't get this huge uh, marketing campaign. The advantage is you keep most of the money yourself. Right. So 
I don't sell as many books as a traditionally published author, but I keep more money per book. So I think I'm ahead of the game. Good. So you're still indie published. Now, does does um, Audible have the rest of your books too? Audible has all of my books. Uh, I have publishing contracts. Well, it's now down to one contract because I've, I've completed the other ones, but I've had publishing contracts with Audible since the first book. So they are my publisher, essentially. They have done right. marketing for me. I have, uh, I have a picture of a billboard up in New York with a uh, singularity trap on it, which I think is the greatest thing on the planet. The, the billboard, not singularity trap. Yeah. Um, so I, I have the advantages of a traditional publisher now. I have somebody who does marketing for me. That's good. So on your um, books, have you had any more offers since you've – because obviously the Bobaverse has is, is become a, more of a, of, a, of a known item. And I see there's quite a few reviews on Amazon for this series – uh, different different titles and on Goodreads. So, have you had other traditional publishers come back and say, "Look, it's made make an offer to you that you said no, thank you," because now you realize you're making some good money on your own indie line. Well, when I wrote Singularity Trap, Ethan did the the traditional publishing uh, dog and pony thing, offering it out to to several uh, publishers. One of them came back with an offer, but it was financially so such a bad idea that we just took one look at it and said no it would be a huge step backward right so we just decided to continue on the way we were going and uh ever since then it's just been that way every single book yeah it's it's interesting i had um hugh howie's been a guest a couple times on the podcast and um he wrote the series first of all in Silo, and then he wrote uh, Sand. And um, when he came out with Across the Sand, he wanted to be on the podcast so we could help promote that and, and get that known. He said he was he started off self-published, and then because of its success, then he went traditional. But then after being traditional, he said he's now going back to self-publish because traditional is like, okay, it has to be this size of a book. It can be no more than one a year. And he has all these things and says, no, you know, I'm going to be able to write my own pace. And he likes to do um, like novelettes or novellas that he can put together to make a novel. And then so he can publish it himself at his own pace and then come back again then with a novel after he's done like the three, three parters on it. So he's going back now to doing being self-published. He says, yeah, it is more, it is better money. But he also now has, I think, his first TV series just came out, Silo, with Rebecca Ferguson as as the lead in that one. There, yep. he's got two more TV deals in the works, so he's 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 doing pretty okay right now, you know. So he he's got his own marketing team going for him. That's going to definitely help the um, the sale of his book, continued sales of his books. Yeah. So go ahead. I, I met Hugh Howey at the X Prize um, conference. I think it was 2017 or 2018. It was, it was quite cool. I also met David Brin and uh, the doctor from uh, Voyager and stuff like that. It was, it was very interesting. Oh, that's cool. They have a lot of celebrities there. Yeah, yeah. Have you done anything at all in terms of promoting yourself? Do you, are you very involved in doing your own personal marketing efforts or social media or doing – obviously, you're on this podcast, so you, you do do something here. Yeah, I – I'm not much of a marketer. I did not stay very long as a salesman at Radio Shack because I'm no good at it. Uh, here's a speaker. These are the specs. Do you want to buy it? No. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no hard sell whatsoever. I'll tell you all about it. But if you're if you just want to look around, I'm quite happy to just let you look around. And that carries through everything. I'm no good at marketing. I'm no good at sales. I personally think that hell is being forced to do sales for eternity. Okay, I got it. So it's not your cup of tea. No, no. <laughs> uh, I do do some social media because it's fun sometimes, but I'm not. Uh, I'm not really active in it. 
like John Scalzi is active in social sure. media. I'm not, not, not to that extent, nowhere near. So how do you, do you do anything to maintain uh, communication with your fans? I'm relatively active on uh, Twitter to the extent that I'm active on anything. I, I but I most I post very non-controversial stuff on Twitter. I'm yeah. not going to get into politics. I'm not going to make you know really belligerent statements about anything like that. It's it's pictures from the from the patio kind of thing. Um, there's also a couple of Facebook groups, uh, fans of the Bobiverse and fans of Dennis Taylor, uh, and I post into those once in a while, and I'll answer questions. My wife actually does most of the marketing. She is uh, she is the marketing director, so she's quite active on social media. That's that's very interesting because I've talked to several authors who's um, together with their spouse spouse make a a, a very successful team. You know, like A. G. Riddle, mm-hmm. you know, A. and G. and Jerry Riddle. Well, that's not his real last name, but she handles part of it. He handles obviously writing the books. There's, so I've had various teams that are that are spouses as well. It just it makes it so you can just focus on your writing, and then your partner then handles other aspects. Yeah, because the more time you're spending working on the company and working on the marketing, the less time you're spending writing. That's a fact. That is absolutely a fact. So, what is your writing schedule? I am the most undisciplined person on the planet. Uh, I consider myself semi-retired, so I, I don't set myself a schedule. Like some people do, Mike Mame, uh, he has a schedule. You know, Peter Kleins, he has a schedule. They will go on the, the uh, treadmill or whatever and type for so many hours and stuff like that. I don't have a schedule. So like when I've interviewed... Um... Uh, Chris Rush, Christine Catherine Rush, she's been um, an editor for decades and she writes uh, like a book a month. She's like, she's crazy, you know, prolific. Um, and she only counts writing if it's new words. It rewrites don't count. Anything else that she's like making editing doesn't count. It's for her writing is only new words. You know, talking with Nettie Korfor, who's um, was a winner way back in volume 19, is one of our judges now. It sounds She's, like um, a very disciplined person. Yeah, well, Chris is. She definitely is very disciplined. And um, she was the editor for um, Magazine FNSF for um, a decade, 15 years. And, but she has her own magazine she edits. Her husband, uh, Dean Wesley Smith, writes 100,000 words a month. Just, But that's, they said, we're authors. That's what we do. He's, he's 71 now and just... He lives to write. That's his whole thing. And they're both writers, so they both respect each other's, you know, industry. Although for them, each other is number one, health is number two, and then number three is their writing. But they still get a lot of writing done. But I'm just just curious. So, like, your writing process in, so granted that you don't have a set schedule in a very big way, but what's your process in terms of, you know, some people, you know, talk about, you know, you've got a pantser, someone who just writes from seats to pants versus other people that will actually organize and plan. Some do a lot of research first, some come with an idea. What's your basic sequence of doing something? I am a failed plotter. Okay, good. I start out by mapping out every book that I'm going to write. I have, I know the beginning, the middle, the end. I know some of the scenes that have to happen. And then I sit down, start to write, and it all falls apart. Um, I tend to just follow where the story is going, and the characters are often dictating to me what they will or will not do. So it, it quite often ends up significantly different than, than, than what I planned in the first place. But I, I think it ends up better than what I planned in the first place. I mean, that's good. Obviously, the... The first book I read of yours, um, did you not know where where Bob was going to take this thing when you started off? In very general terms. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I knew that uh, Bob and his descendants had to come back, Bob and or his descendants, had to come back to Earth 
to rescue humanity and get them out to the stars. Um, the reason for that is that you had colonies with no backup home planet, which gives you more of a conflict, right? right. A, a fully industrialized technological earth that can send more, more stuff out to the colonies at any time that reduces the, uh, the amount of tension. So you take earth out of the equation, you, you've got to scramble to get people off the planet before it, you know, dies completely and just essentially dump them on these other planets. And, and now you have a story. But beyond that, I, I didn't know. I didn't know about the others when I wrote book one. I didn't know about any of the, the things like uh, Poseidon and the civil war on Poseidon or any of that stuff. It just, right. it, it came. I get it. Now, one thing that was that really fascinated me about reading your first book, it's all written in first person, but you had like 10 first persons. They're all Bob, but they're not Bob. Yeah. So that's a good so thing. Because that was, that, that couldn't have been easy. Well, it, it, uh, it was easier than what I started out with because I started writing we are legion in third person because I knew it was going to be multiple points of view. And one of the rules is you don't have multiple first person points of view in a book. I know uh, that was, I was fascinated. You did amazing on that. That's, that was why I said, I've got to talk to this guy. Well, the, the, uh, the gimmick of course, is that I have multiple first person points of view, but they're all the same person. Basically. Basically, yeah. I don't have any non-Bob points of view in there. Right, right. That's correct. But each one, when they get replicated, there's a different part of that Bob that bubbles forth. And some are like very social and they're, they're goofy, you know, with their sense of humor. And uh, what to suspect is more like the author. And then there's... <laughs> And there's others that are very dry and antisocial, but are very much geek, you know, and want to just get into the the science or the, the technology side of stuff. But you had the whole spectrum there. Mm -hmm. I'm sure the spectrum is going to grow. I only did the first book there, but I saw a spectrum forming. Oh, wait until you hit book four. <laughs> so, you know, so um, I said, I've not read one like this with multiple verse, first persons. And you're right. It's... It's um, thou shalt not. So you shout with what you did. So how did you, because it is something new. It's not something I've seen before. So it's sort of a, you made your, a new trope or it's a major twist on an existing trope, but it came across to me as new because I've never read anything like that before. Well, the thing about writing, unlike computer programming, is that there really aren't any rules. There are just suggestions. Right. If you if you write a computer program wrong, it'll delete the computer uh, or all the payroll or something like that. If you yeah. if you write a book wrong, all that happens is it doesn't sell, which is bad, you know. Yeah. But uh, but it's still a book. Yeah, and you haven't lost the payroll. Um, you can do anything when you write if you can justify it, or if you can make the reader think that it's justified. So multiple first-person points of view, in this case, sure. I wouldn't do it in a non-Bob book, though, unless I, you know, unless I had a good reason. The Martian by, uh, by Andy Weir, he has first-person and third-person in there, right. which is normally also frowned upon, but the first-person is all a diary, so it's epistolary, whereas the mm -hmm. third-person stuff is the actual, this is what's happening. It works. But he had a justification for it. So with, with yours, so was there something that triggered or inspired or that made you say, Let, let's just truck this out and just see that that spawned Bob? Um, that, was, that part was always my intention. Uh, I was going for a von Neumann probe, for von Neumann probe, oi. Uh, from, you know, <laughs> so many nerds know the words but don't know how they're pronounced because we picked them up from reading and we're we're quite often 
horribly surprised to find out that we've been pronouncing it wrong all our lives. Von Neumann probes, for instance, I didn't know until I, after I wrote uh, We Are Legion, that it's not Van ne- Von Neumann. Yeah. Uh, anyway, they were always going to be Von Neumann probes. So Bob was always going to replicate. And there were always going to be lots of Bobs out there. Things that were surprises to me was the idea of having each Bob pick his own name. Replication drift, replicative drift, where each Bob's a little different. That was actually a suggestion from my agent to make them a little different to allow for some conflict. Yeah, that was great. It just like they're the same, but they're not really the same. And mm-hmm. how does he deal with that? Yeah. The VR was an addition because it was beginning to look like it was just going to be a bunch of talking heads and not even heads. Right with a with a stellar yeah. a background of stars and just a bunch of voices talking to each other. So I decided I had to put in some kind of visual. So I built him a VR. Do you have a cat? I had a cat. Um, that's Spike. That's Spike. Okay, good. So he's holding up a picture of his of his cat there, and uh, Spike is one of the central ca- feline characters in in the book. Um, and he's always, and Spike's always jumping on, uh, Bob one's or is he Bob one or Bob two? Cause no, he's, he's Bob one, Bob one. Yeah. yeah. Original so Bob is the human. Original. That's right. There we go. So he's always jumping on Bob one's lap and, and getting in the way and having the attention and like your basic cat. Yeah. And actually my description of Spike in the novel is, is true to life. Uh, Spike is the most non-standoffish cat you'll ever meet when once she decides she likes you she will park on you and that's it so obviously you had a permanent parker on you mm-hmm. i used to type with one hand because spike was <laughs> across my stomach with with me holding her up so i would be banging away with the right hand with one hand yeah. that's funny so um have you had like, what's been the reaction from from um, other authors on the on your? Like, I, I was totally fascinated with how you did this. You know, all these different first persons that I've not seen before. I mean, I've seen other other stories where there's been multiple first persons, but it's not. It's done like different sections of the book. It's not like a con, a, a continuous flow. You know, which yours is a continuous flow, and you have your you know, you have your different parts. You have what's happening on Earth. You have what's happening on in the other sectors of of the galaxy. You know, as they're going back and forth. And that was very clever how you solved the problem of of the uh, subether communication or whatever it's whatever you call it. Yeah, subspace. Yeah, subspace. Yes. So that that was that was convenient that they solved that. That one of the the non talkative bobs that was out there. You know, he's the one that cracked that one, made that one happen. Yeah, well, I, I always wanted to maintain uh, an Einsteinian version of, of the universe, but communications at light speed just turned out to be a real bottleneck for the book. So I went back, I introduced instantaneous communications, and it just allowed so many more things to happen. Oh, for sure. You know, it was, it was, it was a needed you know, a needed aspect that you put in there. Cause if they're going to go that far away to have to, you know, waiting for 15 years to, to get a message across is like, or yeah. five years, three years, whatever. Yeah. It definitely slowed the story down. Yeah. There, there are places yeah. for that in some books, but this is not one of them. Right. So now on anything with science fiction, feature science fiction, you've got some of it's based on, Real science and some of it's based on speculative. That's why it's called spec fiction, speculative fiction. So you were talking about earlier on in this on this interview how some people would comment on the the value or the, the reliability of your technology and then like, uh uh-uh, that's actually correct. So what's some of the stuff what's been the stuff that's been the most challenged that's actual fact? true science? Well, there have been a number of minor items that, that I've been challenged on, uh, but, but nothing really major, nothing where, nothing that became an ongoing theme of discussion. 
I do have one guy or did have one guy who made a comment and I can't remember if it was on Amazon or on my blog that said he stopped reading and he wasn't going to continue reading it because I was using junk science and he was referring to panspermia that basically has been completely dismissed by science, which is completely untrue. There's, there's weak panspermia and there's strong panspermia and I use weak panspermia. Can you explain that to the listeners here? Sure. Uh, strong panspermia would be where life actually originates on one planet and gets carried by meteors to another planet. So it's, it's not native to the second planet. Uh, weak panspermia is when you're talking organic molecules. So the reason, for instance, that, that there are organic molecules on, on Earth so early in, in its history is because they formed in space. And if that's the case, there's a good chance that the same organic molecules will form in any solar system that's formed, and the same organic molecules will rain down on the planets as they become livable, which means you're going to get the same general classes of cellular structure. Same amino acids, uh, same leptosugars, so on and so forth. Right. But panspermia is something that is still discussed in science. So this guy was completely out to lunch. And I don't, I don't get into arguments. I can't be bothered. I just let him have his post and ignore him. Right. Okay, so now you're a computer programmer, but you're talking a lot of, of uh, biology. But I mean, your story that you had there also had a lot of science that wasn't computer. I mean, the computer programmer, that became very obvious as I was reading the book. You know, obviously you've got, you know, the, the tech savvy to, to talk shop there and also to dumb it down so that an average reader could enjoy it too. But it was, you definitely, it was real what you were saying and it, and it carried through. But we just said right there, you know, on, on that science, that's not computer programming. So was that just from doing a lot of reading? It was like, is that your constant trips to Google? Or did you actually have a, a, a minor in bioengineering when you were in college or something? No, I, I just read. I've always, like I said before, I've, I've always been an absolutely inveterate reader. Uh, I read Scientific American, I read Nova, some of the other magazines that would come out every month I had subscriptions to. Um, when uh, the internet came around, I started visiting websites like Fizorg on a regular basis and stuff like that. It's just anything like that is interesting. It's all science to me. Right. Okay, yeah, because you definitely had a lot of science in there. So it made it, it came across very like your knowledge in a lot of areas. So I was just curious how that came to be, if that was just a hobby that then grew or it's a, if it was an avocation or if it was one of your past lives as between um, McDonald's and Radio Shack, you were uh, worked for the Smithsonian and, and biotech research. That would have been nice, but no. <laughs> so um, one of the things that, um, again, this is the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. So on putting together your book, you said you went, you know, the first one you did, you spent $120. So um, how much have you found the, the importance of your book cover? And how much control did you have? In it? Did you have the idea of what you wanted to do for your book cover when you started? Or how does that fit in? Because it's also your presentation. Well, other than the very first book cover, which, like I say, I, I just hired somebody on, on a website to do, all the other book covers have been done by professional graphics artists, book cover artists. You always have input, and I've always had input even when Audible's been, been financing the covers, which they have been since the first book. But I am not an artist. I'm, I can be many things, but I'm not an artist. So I generally right. let the people who know what they're doing take care of that. I will say I don't like that, but beyond that, no. Do you give them the story or the story outline, or how do they know what to do? You know, I haven't quite figured that out. I think 
uh, a good graphics artist actually reads the sto- reads the book. He he might just skim it, but um, the the covers like uh, the Martiniere cover, which was uh, Singularity Trap. He must have read the book in order to come up with that cover. He must have he must have actually at least read part of it. He's one of our illustrators, the feature judges, by the oh. way. Yeah. <laughs> Stefan. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I loved that cover. Oh, that's great. Yeah. He's, he's in France and um, he'll be uh, doing, he, he loves it in France. He went back there and um, just, he was here in the United States, had an amazing career here with game design. Mm. And uh, he's got an amazing daughter who, when she finally left the coop, then she's on her way up to becoming some major senior person. She's, she's an amazing person. She's long since gone past his, his senior model. Cool. Yeah. So, um, all right. I was just curious about that because there's one of the things that when people do their, their indie publishing, sometimes some good direction, what works in terms of getting uh, uh, book covers is, is important because you can totally botch it if you have a, if you have a lousy book cover. Yeah, and in fact, it doesn't even have to be a lousy book cover. It just has to look like a self-published book cover. There you go. I I can look at books on Amazon and and just say self-published, 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 self-published. The book cover is insanely important. If you're going to spend money yeah. anywhere, spend it on the book cover. Yeah. That's absolutely true because if somebody you can definitely tell a book by its cover these days because there's there's over a million new books a year yeah and uh, a lot of it's tripe yeah and I it doesn't mean it's a bad book if it's self-published I, I'm, I'm well, not, not at all. objective not at all. but but it it is a strike against it's a strike one you know you look at that and you say oh didn't put a lot of effort into that I don't know about the rest of the story. Yeah. If you don't believe in your own book, then why? Then don't expect somebody else yep. to. And a cover is a way to show that you believe in your yep. book. Absolutely. So now at the beginning, we talked a little bit also, because this is, uh, the Rise of the Future is a contest that was created by Owen Hubbard in 1983 to provide that helping hand. And at this point, there's been over 800 winners in the contest between both writers and illustrators. So you said you were familiar with some of Mr. Hubbard's works. Do you remember any of the stuff that you read? Um, well, Battlefield Earth is, is the only one I've read as far as I know, uh, as far as I know. Yeah. Hugh, well, check the other Bob. Yeah. He may have read some, he may have written some short stories that I've read and didn't, uh, didn't catch the author name. I don't pay as much attention to the name of the author with short stories, but with novels, I always know who I'm reading. Yeah, when I was, again, we mentioned Hugh Howie earlier, and he said he's read that book like seven times. That's the one that really helped him a lot and got him to, on writing science fiction. And Brandon Sanderson said that's how he learned um, plot and pacing. And Kevin Anderson, same thing there, just with that book early on in their careers. So, yeah. um, but anyway, so with, with the... Um, with, with the contest, and what we're trying to do here is, is provide, because uh, that's what originally started way back when, like I said, when Owen Hubbard created the contest in 83. So what would be for you some, some tips or inspiration for um, an aspiring writer? Uh, f- first, study the subject. Don't just dive in and say, I can write a book. And having done exactly that that's great but uh i am speaking from my mistakes uh i did do a lot of of study and research but only after i'd started writing outland so we are legion benefited from my research the first version of outland did not I, i rewrote outland by the way um for audible so the version you get nowadays is not the version that i originally put out but Research. Uh, don't take anything as gospel. Take what works for you and leave the rest. Make sure you have a good idea, or or even better, a great idea. Or at least don't just follow the trope. 
try to try to put twists in. And I guess the last thing is realize that you're probably going to have to write a lot of words before you start to get traction. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, one of the things that several of the, um, the earlier great authors would, uh, would always say, you know, you know, upwards of saying, throw away, your, be willing to throw away your first million words to really build your own voice mm -hmm. and to get to, uh, this is who I am yeah. as an author. So now, um, Again, at the outset, we we're talking about the subject of satire. So, do you have any particular um, favorite satire authors? Because like I said you're, like I said, it's referred to now. Science fiction comedy is earlier what satire was. It pokes fun at, at various things, steps on toes. Yeah, I like I, I like the idea of stepping on toes. I don't so much like the idea of not taking the subject seriously. Um, a character cannot take the subject seriously, but it has to be a serious subject. And again, I'm, I'm going back to uh, Adam's books where, where it's, um, it's almost comic book-like. I mean, I enjoy yeah. his writing, but it's not the same as serious science fiction. I'm probably going to get a lot of hate mail from Adam's fans now, but, but still, there, there's a there's a fundamental difference in feel between something that's written uh, to be comedic and something that's written with characters who who are comedic. Right. So yeah, because your characters. So define that a little bit more so that people listening to this can can actually full, better understand. Because if they haven't read your story, they're not going to necessarily know what you're saying. We hope they will read the story as, as a result of this, but qualify that a bit better, please. Okay, I could have written uh, We Are Legion with with uh, stiff, straight characters, people with no sense of humor, like right out of Star Trek TNG in the early years, where everybody was obviously, you know, walking up to their mark, stopping and speaking. And the story itself would be fundamentally unchanged. It's serious science fiction. It has... Einsteinian limits, except for subspace radio. Uh, people die. You know, there are wars. There are good guys and bad guys and stuff like that. Uh, the story could be humorless and, and not be fundamentally different. But my main character is, is one of those people who always has a snide remark about anything. I, everybody knows somebody who, who can never, um, who's always inappropriate, you know, always has something to say just at the wrong time or always has a joke about things, even in a serious situation. And th that really is Bob. He, he's never trying to take things too seriously. Yeah. And the, um, now the original Bob, and then when all of a sudden he wakes up and starts flailing his one arm, realizing what's happening there. So how do you come up with that? Because that's obviously everything hinged, hinged upon that. I mean, you have to get past, I mean, that's the starting point of your story. And so the reader has to get past go on there. So how much of that's based upon just your knowledge of programming? How much is based upon where technology currently was at the time or where it was rapidly going. How, how did that, how did you ground that? Well, that was a, that was a fundamentally necessary part of the story. Uh, yeah. And it, it was always part of the plan to have Bob in a computer. One of the problems I ran into early on with the idea of, of Bob as a von Neumann probe was that if you went with the, uh, the Anne McCaffrey shift, who sang kind of concept where it's a, a brain actually embedded in the ship. Now you have organics to worry about. And now you have the problem of how exactly do you replicate that? So if you put everything into a computer, it's, it's all hardware, right? And right. it's, it's easy to build another one, take a backup of Bob, restore the backup into the new ship. That's all, that's all straight cybernetics. So Bob has to start off as a computer. He has to learn how to be a computer. And you start with the, with the arm. Right. And there's the thing too with the, um, all the other 
because at the time too where it's taking place now on earth and you had the um, religious factions going on and he was obviously a creature of the devil with the with the current hierarchy of religion slash politics and um having to figures out early on he'd better say the right thing because otherwise he'll be unplugged so how'd you come up with that i don't want to say philosophy of life but <laughs> you're uh you know how you work that out like that um do you mean the the conflict with the religious people or the existence of them yes both okay <laughs> well i um I come from a fairly religious family and I was uh -huh. actually fairly religious in my early life. I was raised Catholic. I've, I've gone, I've done the whole thing. The first communion, the uh, first confession, confirmation, everything like that. I was an altar boy for several years. Uh, as a teenager, I went Protestant and I joined a Baptist church and I learned their outlook on things. And what I ended up learning was that it was it was not compelling. And then you have to start thinking to yourself, well, why do these people think it's compelling? And, and you start to try to develop a theory of how other people are thinking and feeling. It doesn't necessarily take you down good roads. Um, right. So... Combine that with what's been happening in American politics for the last 20 years or so, uh, because it, it didn't just start with Trump. I mean, it was around right. well before that. And I don't think it's much of a stretch. I, I, I'm constantly surprised when people are constantly surprised by the way I predicted things happening in, in, in the Bobiverse books. And I just shake my head and say, well, how how can you expect it to have gone any other way? All right. So um, so with that, so if someone who's not familiar with yourself or the Babaverse, how can somebody find you? How some how does somebody find these books? Well, they're on Amazon. Uh, they're on Audible, and those are the two main places to find them. Uh, they are not on. Kobo and, and Apple and stuff like that because I wanted to get in Kindle Unlimited. Right. And there's only one way to do yeah, that. Yeah, and that's to be exclusive. Right. So then they, they search I Am Bob, they search Bobiverse. They, we they, Are Legion. We Are yeah. Legion. That, that'll, that'll usually get it for you. Yeah. yeah. Okay, good. And then you're, you said you've got two uh, Facebook groups? Or there's two groups that... Yeah, there are two Facebook groups. I'm not in the admin for them. I visit once in a while, but I'm just a member. Uh, Fans of the Bobiverse. I think there might be a third one uh, relating to Outland, but I can't remember. Uh, and Fans of Dennis Taylor. Uh, Fans okay. of the Bobiverse is the most active one. Sure, sure. So as I said at the outset here as well... Um, I can totally understand why uh, Kim was so adamant that I um, that I read your work, and because we're getting ready to come out with Mission Earth, which is a ten volume satire series written by Owen Hubbard, like I said, where he steps. There are no toes where toes may exist anywhere on this planet that don't go unstepped on. So um, it's something that uh, if you enjoy that type of stuff, then I highly recommend you, Dennis, as well, mm -hmm. uh, have a read of these things here. They're they're really good. And we've got an audiobook ready to come out. It's 123 hours for all 10 books, but um, that's that's soon to happen. But anyway, it's been great speaking with you. I very much appreciate this time uh, to chat with Thanks. you. Can I just add uh, a couple of things? Sure. Um, but on the subject of, of toes stepping on, everybody should be prepared to have their toes stepped on. If you don't think your toes should be stepped on, then you need to give your head a shake. Nobody's immune, <laughs> nobody's Teflon, nobody's bulletproof, and nobody should expect to be. Good. Maybe that's why I enjoyed this book. <laughs> and thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We have also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. 
Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere via Amazon.com. We're especially appreciative of our sponsor, Carnation, for supporting this podcast. Carnation has been making delicious milk products for over a century and is still going strong. Writers and illustrators of the future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Dennis. All right. Thanks for having me on.